Welcome to the ninth episode of One Christian Thinks, a podcast that examines current events, politics, worldview, and ideologies from an explicitly Christian perspective. I am your host, Mike Hutton. If this is your first time listening, I ask that you press pause and listen to the first episode, where I introduce the show, my motivations, and give some guiding principles. In today's episode, I will first address a little bit of feedback that I received from last episode, and then I'll start my discussion on freedom. In this case, freedom and the law of God. So first, I want to talk a little bit about last episode briefly. I received some positive feedback and also some negative feedback. Thanks for both. I appreciate any type of feedback. I almost appreciate negative feedback a little bit more because it forces me to just pause and reflect on my ideas, things I've said. So it helps me to it helps me to learn. It helps me to formulate my ideas in a cohesive way. However, with that reflection on last episode, I've come up with a few things that I just want to clarify. Things that either I I didn't state or I might not have stated them as clearly as I should have. So, as a refresher, last episode I discussed the symbolism of the government interventions around COVID, specifically the hand-washing, social distancing, and mask mandates. I ended up coming down pretty hard on the interventions. I said they, they generally pushed people away from trusting others and towards dependency on the government. Now, I just want to clarify what I didn't say. I did not say that the government interventions are not necessary for a short period of time. I also did not say that the government is wrong to impose certain restrictions. But I am entirely willing to say that the effectiveness of the interventions is pretty debatable, particularly when you consider that the WHO, the World Health Organization, has pulled a 180 from their original stance and actually came out against lockdowns, saying they're more harmful than good. And they're also debatable when you consider that the most recent study on masks, as they're worn by most people, finds the effects of masks debatable as well. I'm also entirely willing to point out that the government has many glaring inconsistencies in their application of the interventions. For example, Why is Costco, a massive international corporation, allowed to serve food inside while a small business owner 500 meters down the road trying to support his family is not? This is the case with Adam Skelly, who tried to keep his Toronto restaurant open during the lockdown, but actually ended up being arrested and having his restaurant seized by the government. This is the same government that said they supported small business owners When in actual effect, over the last nine months, the big businesses, all the big businesses who have had massive increases in their profits, and the small business owners are suffering. In fact, I read one paper that suggested that if there is another lockdown over the winter, up to 25% of small businesses with less than 20 employees will fail. That's a huge number. That's a huge number of people who will end up with no job if there's another lockdown. Now, in my episode, I also did not say that if you as an individual follow the government mandates, 
then you are contributing to societal breakdown or you have too much trust in the government. I didn't say that. What I was trying to show, and maybe I didn't make it that clear, but I was trying to show the acceptance of government imposition and the trust placed in the government at a societal level. This is a trend that has started in the Western world at least half a century ago, which hopefully I'll discuss in another episode. And I believe the current situation with COVID exacerbates it, and the symbolism of the intervention highlights it. So hopefully that helps to clarify what I said last episode, and maybe it answers some of the questions you've had. Moving on now to the topic of the day, freedom and the law of God. This might be an odd place to start a discussion on freedom for some people. After all, isn't freedom the ability to do whatever we want? And isn't God's law a restriction on that? Does not God's law restrict freedom? Isn't any set of rules a a decrease in freedom? We just have to decide on the balance between how much freedom we want and how much security. Before I get into answering these questions, I want to outline what I believe to be true about God's law in our lives right now. I don't want to assume that every Christian or non-Christian listening right now understands these ideas or agrees with me. So, briefly, my understanding of the primary role of God's law in our lives is to, first, make us aware of our sin, how we have offended God when against his revealed will, and thus also show us our need for a way to set us right with God, effectively someone to save us from God's anger at our sins, which points us to Christ. And then second, once we understand our need for salvation through Christ, God's law serves as a guide for holy living and as a way to show our thankfulness to him for forgiving our sins in Christ's death on the cross. As Christians, We are no longer under God's law, subject to it. Instead, we have been freed from the law through Christ. I know there are some Christians who have different views on God's law, but I don't want to get into a theological discussion about that right now. I want to look at freedom and the law from a slightly different perspective, and admittedly a secondary perspective. This discussion is not about the primary role of God's law in our lives, I don't want to diminish that at all. But I want to take a bit of a different perspective. As Christians, it's easy to get stuck in the mentality that Christianity is only about receiving God's salvation from our sins, and after that, it's all about how we serve God. Salvation and service. The effect that it often has is that we tend to separate the spiritual realm from the physical world. We have received salvation for our sins, and our actions show our thankfulness to God for our salvation, but beyond that, our spirituality often doesn't penetrate this physical world. We are so surrounded by the materialist understanding of this world, the scientific explanations, and it affects our views as well. The spiritual realm and the physical realm slowly grow further and further apart. So what I want to do in this episode is try to develop an understanding that brings those realms a little closer together with a discussion on how God's law interacts with our freedom in this world. 
I do not want this discussion to take away from our spiritual understanding of freedom and law, but instead to augment it, to add to it. So with that introduction, first then, a question. What is freedom? It's generally seen as a good thing by most people, particularly in Western cultures. But what is it? A classic dictionary definition of freedom goes something like this. The power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Basically, the ability to do whatever we want. But is that actually freedom? If it is, can we ever actually be free? There's always some sort of restriction on our actions. It might be easier to visualize freedom with a metaphor. I took the idea for this metaphor from Jordan Peterson, and regardless of what you think about him, I think this metaphor makes a good point. Imagine you are invited over to play a board game at a friend's house. My wife and I frequently have people over to play board games. It's, it's a great way to get to know people and see a side of people you might not otherwise see. In this instance, you go over and when you get there, after some introductions and small talk, the host, your friend, announces that the game is set up so everyone can gather around the table to play. On the table, you see an unfamiliar board set up with some playing pieces, a deck of cards, and some dice. Everyone sits down, and your friend turns to you and says, okay, you go first. You look confused and ask, well, well what are the rules? Your friend says, there are none, just go. But meaningful movement is essentially impossible because ultimately you have no idea what the goal of the game is, nor what the rules are. This metaphor tries to show that absolute freedom, the ability to do whatever you want, is actually paralyzing. It's not freeing at all to be able to do whatever you want. It actually destroys freedom. With no goal, no rules, and no ability to determine what is meaningful, your freedom to play, to make a move, is gone. And so in life, often, we think that rules take away freedom, restrict our movement. But the reality is that to have freedom, you must first have some sort of guiding principle, some set of rules and a goal to be able to make any meaningful movement. The question then becomes, what set of principles gives us freedom? And what rules restrict freedom? Because there's a fine line there. Principles and rules are necessary for freedom, but too many rules obviously restrict freedom. So where's the line? With that context, I want to examine God's law, specifically the Ten Commandments. The way that I want to do this is with the creation story. My idea is that if we can see that the Ten Commandments, instead of being a set of arbitrary rules that God came up with, are actually inherent to the creation story, and as such, are foundational in how God ordered this world, then we can also understand that the Ten Commandments are the rules through which we, as individuals, might attain maximum freedom in this world, regardless of our situation. If the Ten Commandments exist not only in the spiritual realm, 
but also as a concrete basis for the created order for this world, then by following them, we are aligning ourselves with creation. We are following the ideals that God set in place when he brought this physical world into existence. So then, starting off reading the Ten Commandments as they are recorded in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Let's take a look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, at creation, there was God and not much else. God alone, above all, created everything. Animals, plants, and finally man. For man to turn around, reject God, and come up with another God to worship would be a gross act of defiance toward the true God. God created everything. He is the one to be worshipped. There are no other gods. He didn't create them. And so the first commandment has a connection to creation. Now the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in a heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, similar to the first commandment, God created everything. Everything is under God's dominion. So there is no reason to make an image of anything in creation and worship it. There is no reason to worship the created instead of the creator. On top of that, God actually put man over all creation. Genesis 1 verse 28 and 29 talk about the creation of man, saying, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant, yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. God actually put man in dominion over all creation. So why would man turn around and worship something that he is in dominion over? And so the second commandment is also in the creation story. Now the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Again, similar to the last two, God created everything, so misusing the name of God disrespects both the highest power and his creation. But also, consider this. What led to the fall into sin? Didn't the serpent tempt Eve by taking God's name in vain? Starting at Genesis 3 verse 1, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent misused God's name. He attributed something to God that God did not say. He took God's name in vain. Not only is the third commandment in creation, but Satan in serpent form went against the third commandment, which led to man's falling away from God, the fall into sin. And now the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now I know many Christians do not believe in a weekly rest day as ordained by God, and I'm not here to pick a fight with them. While I do believe that the Sunday is a day of rest, whether you agree or whether you believe the Sabbath rest points towards our eternal spiritual rest, the basis for the fourth commandment is clearly the creation story. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then, as both a guide for holy living and a guide for the created order, I do believe a Sabbath rest still applies today. If you're interested, we totally can have that theological discussion offline. I would love to have that. Now the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So this one might not be quite as clear as the rest to this point. There are no real references to children in the creation story. However, immediately after the fall into sin, God said to the woman, reading Genesis 3 verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I'm not sure if this means that childbirth would not have been painful in the Garden of Eden, or if it means that now you will have children and it will be painful. But then it says in Genesis 3 verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So we do have a reference to Eve as a mother immediately following the fall into sin. And whether it was before or after the fall into sin, God gave the woman the role of having children, being a mother, and thus also the role to the man of being a father. So the role of father and mother was given to Adam and Eve directly from God, because through these roles, God would work out his plan for salvation, the birth and ultimately death of Jesus. So the fifth commandment too has its basis in the creation story and is integral to God's plan of redemption. Now the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Murder, disregarding the life of another human who is made in the image of God. 
Death itself was God's promised punishment if Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were forbidden to eat from. But murder, that is, to disregard that man is made in the image of God as the sort of crowning act of creation, that's not only a sin against another man, but it is directly a sin against God who created that man. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This can be seen in God's act of creating Eve. God specifically created Eve as a helper for Adam. Starting in Genesis 2 verse 18, the Bible says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so we can see the seventh commandment in the creation story as well. To commit adultery in any situation is to profane the relationship between man and woman, husband and wife, as God created it in the beginning. Now I'm going to jump ahead to the ninth commandment and look at the eighth and tenth commandments together. So the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This commandment too is a sin against another man and thus also a sin against God because he made man in his image. But also this is a sin against God in another way as well. The Bible has multiple references to God or Jesus as truth and also God's word as truth. By God's word, he created the entire world. So in that way, to bear false witness, to lie, is to go against God's character and also how his creation was ordered, since it was created in truth. Now finally, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And the tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Both of these commandments deal with respecting others' property. These commandments actually assume private property rights, or else they wouldn't even make sense. But where are they in creation, since there were no other people in creation besides Adam and Eve? Now, there might not be an absolute connection, but when God gave man dominion over the whole world in Genesis 1 verse 28 and 29, that to me seems to be the start of the institution of private property. 
R.J. Rushduni, in his Institutes of Biblical Law, says this as well. Part of having dominion over something is to have control over it. And you don't have full control over something unless it's yours. Of course, this text also puts private property rights into context. Man was given dominion, control, over God's creation. Our property is not ours alone, but is given to us by God to use for his purposes. But then to steal someone else's property or to covet, to set your heart on someone else's property, is to go against that principle. It is to take something that God has given to someone else to have dominion over. So, I think that the Ten Commandments are actually found in the creation story. They reflect God's nature and thus also are central to the created order. And if they are, then to obey the Ten Commandments is also to align yourself with the created order as God intended. And I believe when done on the individual level, also gives the individual the greatest freedom in this world as God intended man to be free. Because God did create man to be free, as we'll discuss in a later episode. Of course, with this, I'm doing my best to tread carefully. In this episode, I'm not necessarily arguing that a government is obligated to enforce God's law. I'm merely saying that following the created order as seen in the Ten Commandments is the best set of guiding principles through which we can attain freedom on an individual level. I also do not want to diminish the primary role of the law, the spiritual aspect. I'm not arguing for some sort of prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that if you serve God, you will end up healthy and wealthy in this world. I don't believe that for a second. What I'm trying to do is connect the spiritual and physical realm in a concrete way. I'm trying to show, maybe in a, in a messy, confused way, that God's fingerprints are truly through all creation and that his creation is consistent with his law. Of course, this is not a completed thought. If listening to this, you have other ideas, suggestions, or criticisms that you think would help refine these ideas, please share. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. Whether you do that on the Facebook page or through email, I'd love to interact with your ideas either way. So that's it for today's discussion on freedom. At this time, I want to make a special announcement. It's something that I'm pretty excited about. I have about five episodes planned for my complete discussion on freedom, which will probably take me through December and part of January. Now, following that theme, the theme of freedom, I plan to record myself reading a book called the Story of Liberty, written by Charles Coffin. This book was first published in 1879, and as far as I can tell, it's in the public domain, so hopefully I won't run into any legal issues with this. This is a book that follows European history starting with John Wycliffe in the 1300s, and traces how ultimately it was through the proper preaching and spreading of the gospel that many European countries developed an understanding of liberty and how it resulted in the people throwing off the shackles of the tyrants who ruled over them. 
This book ties together church history and general European history in a unique way. It contains a lot of factual history, but it reads like a storybook rather than a textbook. I'm not a history buff. I get lost in all the dates and names, but I really like the book, and I think you will too. There's 31 chapters to the story. I plan to release a new chapter every day in January. I'm planning to release it right alongside my normal episodes, so I hope you'll join me along for that. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, whether you agreed with it or not, I ask you to like, share, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever podcast service you use. I'd really appreciate if you could share it with other people who might be interested. Not necessarily people who would agree, but people who would be interested in having a conversation. As always, feel free to comment and share the Facebook page or send me an email at oct at allmail.net. That's OCT, which stands for One Christian Thinks, at A-L-L-M-A-I-L dot net. Until next time, keep thinking.